This is Eric Golden, and today we're replaying my conversation with William Quigley, the co-founder of Tether. This is one of my favorite episodes of the year as William combined his lessons from his decades in technology with a strong first principle understanding of blockchains. I hope you enjoy the show. We will be releasing new episodes along with an exciting update about the show within the next few weeks. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole to find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is William Quigley. William has had a fascinating career working on the frontier of technology. He co-founded one of the earliest consumer venture capital funds, wrote the first institutional check for PayPal, and helped build the first major stablecoin, Tether. We start with a quick tour of his career and then dive into the history of Tether, the design choices that made it the most traded cryptocurrency in the world, and how digital assets have been around a lot longer than you may have thought. From my experience working in traditional finance, I have been a bit obsessed with stablecoins and enjoyed the opportunity to dive this deep into Tether. I hope you enjoy my conversation with William Quigley. I'm excited to be joined today by William Quigley, co-founder of Tether, as well as co-founder of Wax. William, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. So, William, as people get into crypto, there's usually a story of they're interested in something, but you've had a long career, you're in venture capital, you've been in the gaming space. If you could start with a thumbnail sketch of what was it about your prior career and how you looked at crypto that made it a bit of a natural evolution for you? Sure. I'll try to give up one that is very logical. So as you mentioned, I was a venture capitalist. I co-founded the first consumer internet venture capital fund back in the mid nineties with two partners where internet was just starting out. We had decided we were going to be a sector focused VC fund. I have continued that theme throughout all of my life. I like being focused on a sector. I don't like being a generalist. And not just the internet, but the consumer internet, in our view, is going to be a spectacular area of opportunity. I could go on as a VC and tell you how so many people at that time thought internet was a fad. Internet probably wasn't ever going to amount to anything, principally because while people could understand this idea of one-to-one connections, they struggled with the fact, particularly Wall Street, that there was no revenue model. Well, actually, there was no business model. And as a result, lots of people discounted it. But I was a VC. I did a lot in, obviously, consumer internet types of things, e-commerce, music, travel, all the categories that ultimately got defined, and payments. We were the first institutional investors in PayPal. And one of the things that I learned from that experience was when we were starting out with a brand new 
platform, in this case, it was the internet, there were layers that you would approach your investing focus with. So initially, we didn't call it this at the time, but there was infrastructure. You just needed things to actually connect people. And then once you did that, there had to be the first applications that generally were very familiar to people. So the very first real applications were e-commerce, and those were really more just mail order catalogs that were put online. There's lots of ways people adopt new technologies, but almost always the way they adopt them is they take what they know and they just shoehorn it into this new thing. And that's what we did with mail order catalogs. No one really had thought all the wonderful things you can do if you have this dynamic interface. It was just, hey, well, instead of printing pictures in catalogs and mailing them, we'll post pictures online and get people to click on a piece of merchandise. I also did gaming. And that's the immediate thing preceding crypto. Something, by the way, that a lot of people probably don't know is that many of the early people in crypto were from my industry, what we call virtual item trading industry. So my partner, who I worked with for many years, he invented the concept of trading video game virtual items for money, for real money, call it RMT, real money trading. And for anybody in the virtual item space, they know this term. But there was a great struggle with how to actually trade a virtual item to a person you don't know. And who would trade first? I'm sending you an item, you send me cash. Well, remember, there is no PayPal at this time. There are no credit cards. Obviously, there's no crypto. So there was a lot of scams. The only way to really do it was to centralize it. So the opposite of crypto. And so my partner, Yantis, he started a custodial service, a marketplace. You would send him your virtual item as the seller. The buyer would then send him money. And that money initially was PayPal. And then once he got the money and had the item, he could make sure everything was copacetic and then give the buyer the item and give the seller the cash and then take some fee for arranging that. And that industry ultimately grew to about 10 billion USD annually, the volume. And lots of different game publishers had virtual items, though I will say most game publishers didn't like the idea of people trading their virtual items for money. So there was always a battle and accounts would get seized, our businesses would get attacked, we would get sued and whatnot. So that happened for many, many years. Eventually, my partner, I was on his board, he sold that company, and that was around 2009. And shortly thereafter, he came upon the Satoshi white paper. And he started to mine pretty early. He talked to me about it. And I had the experience years earlier as a VC funding companies that did magic internet money. These were businesses like flues and beans, things that have been lost to time, but those were the first attempts to have virtual items that would be used as payment. And the reason they were attractive was because you could do micropayments, the idea of sub $1 payments. And the reason that's attractive, even to this day, is because it's almost impossible to do sub $1 payments. For those of you who have ever gone to a merchant to buy something, sometimes they'll say if it's under $5, no credit cards. The reason they say that is there's a fixed cost 
that would basically overwhelm the value of the transaction. If you have to pay 25 cents to different parties who help facilitate an online transaction, then selling something for a dollar, 25% of the whole cost of the transactions eaten up in a fee. Unfortunately, these things never caught on. They didn't work. And I didn't understand really why they didn't work. It wasn't until my partner, and it was over a year, by the way, of him harassing me to please take a look at this thing called blockchain and this thing called Bitcoin, that I eventually said, okay, a few things happened. I said, I will wait a few hours. I'll let you pitch me. And at the end of that time, I'll decide yay or nay. And so he took about three hours. But he focused on the blockchain, which I had not really spent much time on. And I finally started to get just the early understanding of why this was maybe special. I had used what we would now call blockchains decades earlier. Blockchains, I don't know how long they've been around, but I certainly suspect hundreds of years we've had blockchains. In the 80s, when I was an auditor for banks, particularly Japanese banks, we used blockchains. We didn't call them that, but that's what they were. We were taking hash totals and making little algorithms of the hash totals and keeping that stuff safeguarded. And we used them to validate that there had been no changes to records that we had audited in the previous year. And for those people who understand Merkle trees and hash totaling, blockchains are super powerful for ensuring that no piece of information has been modified in a database. And that's what we used them for. But the true brilliance and insight of the founder, our founders of Bitcoin, was to marry a blockchain with a token. Because when you did that, and we can explain this in more detail later, you allowed for decentralized systems because you have distributed work. You can have compensated distributed work if you have a blockchain that produces coins that compensate workers for whatever work they're contributing. That's the true genius of the creators of the Bitcoin blockchain. And I'll stop there. No, it's wonderful. There's so much to dive into. I guess the first thing I want to think about is your founder who did the virtual item trading, which I know we'll get into with NFTs, is what was the first item that was ever traded? I know the first game. So the first popular game in the West was Ultima Online, where you had virtual items and you could exchange them between accounts. That was mind-blowing. Now, the Koreans, who always lead everything in gaming, they had had virtual items and exchangeable virtual items for many years before. But as happens so often, even today in the video game world, what happens in Korea kind of stays there. And it has to somehow percolate out later. And that was the first game also where you started to have the scams where somebody would say, hey, send me the item and I'll look at it and then I'll pay you, I'll mail you a check, trust me. I don't know what the very first item though was. I don't even know if he would remember. That's interesting to me. I know that it's a very common thought amongst gamers or anyone who's played a game. Why can't I keep these? Why do I have to move these? And obviously there's a whole overlap of on-chain. Sticking with tokens for now, so you get into, you understand, you have an appreciation for it, but when did you start thinking about, I want to invest or I want to start building actually in crypto as opposed to, okay, this is interesting and I should pay attention? 
So the way it happened was Yantis, my partner, had been bugging me about blockchain. Now he's deep technologist. And so there's a lot of things that interest him that didn't interest me. And as we talked about, one of the great hazards of being an investor, which is the scar tissue of prior deals gone bad, because what that will do will put you in a straitjacket where it could very well be that the reason they went bad wasn't because it was a bad design or it was a bad economic model or the team was bad. It could just be timing wasn't right. Timing is really hard to get right. Most of the things we do today that we've embraced, somebody did them earlier, but the time wasn't right. And so they never happened. He was trying to overcome a lot of resistance I had that I said, look, that magic internet money doesn't work. But of course I was missing the blockchain piece. But what happened is I went to Singapore to help a girlfriend of mine launch another video game virtual item marketplace. And she was building this thing and she wanted some of my help. And as she was driving me back to the airport to fly back to the US, as parting words, she was like, hey, by the way, we didn't talk about, what do you think about Bitcoin? And I was like, oh, it's interesting. You're the second person who I respect who's mentioned that. I don't know. I don't have an opinion, but that's what happened. I went back to the US and I told Yantis, all right, you have two hours, pitch me, whatever. After that, like I said, it took about three hours. Within a few days, I had gotten off of five boards that were not in the Bitcoin blockchain area because I wasn't on anything. And I had decided this would be my focus for several years. And of course, I understood virtually nothing yet, but I started to see the potential. Though I will also say that I came up with a game plan of how we were going to go tackle this sector. But even after I had been building wallets and exchanges and custodial apparatuses and then blockchains, it was many years before I really understood what a blockchain really was about. And one of the things that we can talk about later, it's incredibly important to distill whatever this thing is you're looking at, this technology, this platform, and understand what are the base components that make this thing powerful? Because let's say if you're an investor and you're looking at a lot of different pitches, you will probably find out that many of the people pitching you, this is certainly true in internet, it's certainly true in blockchain, many of them are pitching you, don't really understand what it is that makes this blockchain thing special. Therefore, what they're trying to do isn't really harnessing the blockchain. And worse, it could probably be done better without a blockchain. Because for your audience, one of the things I would say to them is, a blockchain is the worst possible way to do virtually everything with a footnote. And that footnote is, there are a few things it does, and it does in such a spectacular way that there's nothing in the world that does better than it. What you want to do is you want to understand what are these things for which a blockchain is ideal and then build things that harness those components. We've seen this again and again, people launching ideas for which it feels like the blockchain is a marketing gimmick as opposed to a core strength of whatever they're offering. And that's how we get cynicism in this industry. And smart guys start to go, that doesn't make any sense to me. So there are only a handful of things that I have discovered so far for which blockchain has no equal. 
There'll be more as time goes on. But for me, I was building and operating blockchain businesses before I had really come to understand in a way that I could express to my team what a blockchain really is at its core. So what are some of those examples of, I love that framing that it's horrible for virtually everything except specific examples where it's the most perfect solution. As you've built and have your experience it, what are some of the examples for which blockchain is the perfect solution? So whenever I'm teaching new associates, of course, the first thing they ask me is, because I actually am very precise, there are five things I know of in the world for which blockchains are ideal. And the next best way to do that thing is much inferior. But I rarely ever say what those five things are, not because they're secrets, because everybody knows them. When I say them, you're going to go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But because it's a non-thinking exercise. So instead, what I say is, well, let's think about what the blockchain does. It allows you to know with certainty that a database or a record has never been modified. It allows you to send something to somebody where the recipient knows with certainty at no cost and with no effort that the thing they're receiving is authentic. That's certainly a power that if you think deeply about that, there's a million different businesses you can launch that just take advantage of that. The ability to send somebody something of value that they know with certainty is authentic with no effort, no time, no commitment. I know of no other thing that we can send each other, particularly if you're saying I'm anonymous when I'm sending it to you. The fact that you don't even need to know who I am that you still know with certainty what you're getting is authentic. It's not true of anything I know. It's certainly not true of any fiat money because counterfeit. It's not true of any precious mineral or metal, a diamond. There are people who might know what a real diamond is, but those people would not be able to tell you that instantly with no effort. Same with gold, a painting, forget about it. So for most things, they don't exhibit those types of traits. But let's take one example of where a blockchain is better than anything on earth because of those traits, a new type of money. So we can talk about Tether briefly. What if I could send you a fiat, like a US dollar, wrapped in an envelope that's impenetrable, and once I've sealed it as a token, it can never be modified, never be manipulated. And because you know from where it came, a certain smart contract, you know the origin, you know, therefore, that that origin site only produces authentic tethers. Therefore, you know with certain that you're getting this wrapped fiat. Now, no other way other than having a lot of trust can I send you money and you know without thinking and doing any effort that it's real. If you think about it, the way this works in the real world is you say, oh, well, I'll wire you money from Bank of America to Barclays Bank. Barclays and Bank of America have invested tens of billions of dollars in infrastructure to prove I am who I am, KYC and all that, and who you are, and to accommodate the transaction in a way where it has a very low risk of it being manipulated, intercepted, something bad happening where that transaction's modified in a way I didn't intend. But there's hundreds of thousands of people employed to do that. And they all are working in concert and they're all being paid. They're all centralized. 
and they all follow certain rules. And that's a very rigid system. So I can't just send you a dollar and you get it anywhere and hold it and no one else but you can access it. What I really do is I communicate with my bank. It communicates with your bank. Your bank and my bank agree that the following internal ledgers are going to be adjusted. They adjust those ledgers and then they credit you something. But you don't really own that dollar. You just have a promise from an institution that if you do what you're supposed to do and abide by their terms and services, they will let you have that dollar when you ask for it, subject to a lot of questions. So it's a massively different system. And so blockchains allow for us to anonymously send things to people where, as we say in blockchain, the idea of trust itself has been removed. There's no need for trust. What you have faith in is in the math models, essentially, that what you're getting, it would take so much energy and effort to manipulate that it wouldn't be worth it to the party who was trying to do the manipulation. So the default is always it's authentic. So money is a powerful thing to do with the blockchain. So those are the two things. What were the five use cases? What I would prefer your audience does is it says, what are the elements of a blockchain that make a blockchain special? And I would say this to your audience, forget about the average Joe. Take the people you know who most understand crypto and 1% of them will be able to answer that very basic question in words that they can actually convey whatever it is they think to you. Because there is a laziness, not just in blockchain, but everywhere, where people understand it enough to use it, which is fine if you're a user, but if you're going to build something, you need to really understand why this is so special. It's like somebody who specializes in material science. They really get where it works and where it doesn't work. That makes them be able to filter out all the BS and just focus on the thing for which this is a real value add. Everybody who wants to build in blockchain or wants to evaluate other people's opportunities that are being presented to them in blockchain, they need to just write it down. What is it that a blockchain does well? And then when you hear a pitch or you learn about a new token, ask yourself, how is that team harnessing the blockchain in those ways? And if you can't figure out why they're using a blockchain, because it doesn't seem like they're actually exploiting any of the benefits of a blockchain, then more than likely, the blockchain is just a veneer they're putting on something, maybe to get some marketing value out of it. So you mentioned Tether and a stable coin, and something I've been extremely fascinated with for my time of working on money market funds. I think stable coins are unbelievably interesting. So Coming into crypto, Tether was one of the first things I read about, and there was a lot of headlines and there was fun about it. But I'm curious to rewind back to the origin story of how did you get into deciding to co-found Tether? So I have a couple of partners. One of those partners had really, I think, framed the concept. What I had framed was a set of needs. And we had a lot of ideas and ultimately crystallized around what is now Tether, which fundamentally, and I'm very proud of this, has changed in no material way since it was born, which to me says it was done very well from the outcome. True insight is incredibly rare. And the only way I think you can have insight is to be deep in something. It's very unlikely you're going to have great insight about something 
if you're just a casual observer. We were trading cryptocurrencies. And in order to understand why we needed Tether, you had to understand all the things that we were struggling with. And that could be a whole podcast in itself. So I'll try to skinny it down to just, it was very difficult to use exchanges to trade what we called back in the day altcoins. And an altcoin was really anything that wasn't Bitcoin, basically. Maybe Litecoin wasn't an alt, but we considered almost everything altcoins. That phrase has been lost, but there were three exchanges in the world where you could deposit cash, and then they would allow you to use that cash to buy a Bitcoin. But as it turned out, those exchanges really didn't trade much else but Bitcoin. And Bitcoin was fine, but there wasn't anything fun about just holding Bitcoin or trying to buy a little more, buy a little less. The fun was in trading it for altcoins because those were very, very volatile. And any trader will tell you, you make money in volatility, not with just a stable asset. So what you would do is you would wire money to a traditional exchange. That exchange would allow you a few days later, give you credit for the cash. You would buy a Bitcoin. Then you would transfer that Bitcoin out to an alt exchange. An alt exchange was an exchange that didn't take fiat. It only took Bitcoin. Then you would be there messing around with all these alts for a week or two, and then you would get concerned that there was going to be a crash, and there usually was. So what was your way to protect yourself against a crash? Well, you get out of the alts to Bitcoin, but if Bitcoin's going to crash too, then you need to get out of Bitcoin and get into fiat. That process of selling your alts, getting Bitcoin, transferring the Bitcoin out of the alt exchange to the fiat-taking exchange, and these were not depository exchanges. They couldn't hold your cash. What they would do is they would just send it back to you. They were pass-through entities. So you'd sell your Bitcoin, they'd send you your cash. Seven days after you made the decision to get out of the alts, you now had cash in your bank. But by that time, you wanted to be back in. So reverse all of that. Seven days later, you're back in to the alts. That was incredibly tedious, time-consuming. And so the set of constraints I imposed on the team was, what if we were to have a thing that didn't move very much in relation to the dollar? And so whenever we got nervous or lost our game face, we could seek out a safe harbor, but it was a token. Therefore, it could be held on the alt exchange. And so we could easily get in and out. And there were all kinds of ideas. Ultimately, the idea of something linked in some way to currency. And then even from that point, we all know about Luna and the collapse and all that. What they did, that flavor of what we now call a stablecoin, that wasn't lost on us. There were many different ways to create a stable token or relatively stable. The reason we decided that the best way was depositing cash in a traditional bank and then issuing tokens equal to that cash was for one reason. And that is something I learned in my days at Disney. Consumers pray to the God of convenience. And convenience means a lot of things. One thing it means is simplicity, easy, simple to understand, simple to use. And our thinking was, if I say to you, here is a token, I will issue you this token if you give me a dollar, and then you can redeem that token for a dollar, that one-to-one -one relationship is pretty easy to understand. Now, I should caveat this by saying it's easy to understand now. 
It may come as a shock to a lot of your listeners, but it took a full year for us to explain this to not the average Joes, but to crypto people, a full year. They just didn't understand it. And sometimes I'll say that at a conference and people will laugh and say, wow, they must have been stupid. But I have seen this phenomenon throughout my life. When something is truly novel, it's hard for people to really process it. The very first criticism they made of it was one that exposed people's lack of understanding of blockchain. Here's what was the number one criticism. They said, so, okay, William, you've got this dollar now, this digital dollar. Congratulations. Digital dollars have existed for decades, man. What's new about that? And that was my first hint that virtually no one in crypto understood the profound difference between tokenization and digitization. Our task then was to explain why a tokenized asset was fundamentally superior to a digital asset. That took about a year, and it required us to explain literally what a blockchain was. But once people figured out enough, then the traders came in. And you worked on Wall Street, so you're going to get this. There is no way to conduct an arbitrage transaction unless one side of the trading pair is stable, because otherwise you can't calculate a profit. If both things are moving up and down relative to some other thing you care about, like a dollar, where's your profit? You make 50 basis points on the trade, but you lose 300 basis points on the exchange to the reference point, the dollar. So by creating Tether, we allowed for arbitrage trading, real arbitrage trading. And once that happened, we knew that this token would be very popular. Now, we didn't know how popular. Today, to put this in perspective, Tether is the most traded crypto on earth. It trades maybe 30 trillion US dollar annual volume, more than 50% of all trading pairs of tokens globally settle against Tether. For all of the biggest volumes, if you look at any token and you look at what trading pairs are driving the biggest volume, overwhelmingly, it's Tether and other stable coins. For the reason I mentioned, it's the only way to arbitrage. So it took a while for people to understand it, but once they understood it, it was inevitable that it would become the most popular token. So working on Wall Street, working on the fixed income side and being in the money market space, to me, it's an interesting concept. I totally hear you on the point about it's a database, so you know the ledger hasn't been touched. You understand that you can send it from one person to another and it can be anonymously sent. The first thing that interested me, I thought what would have been a bit of an abstraction for the people was an understanding tokenization. So that's fascinating. I thought it would have been the fact that you're trusting someone with a dollar. Because now this looks like a bank deposit or a money market where now I want to know, and we talked about this before we started, maybe the fixed income side of where do the reserves go? What's it invested in? There's a lot more risk I'm now trusting the Tether team with because as lots of dollars go over there, I'm super curious where those dollars are being invested. Because if you give someone a dollar, and I think that there's a simplicity in that, give me a dollar, give me a token, makes all the sense in the world. But then the next question becomes, well, where do all those dollars go? We're not going to put them under a mattress and then at William's house and then deliver them later. How did that process or thinking start to evolve from the financial side? I would say my partners all thought that was a huge problem. A lot of the people in the media a decade later when they learned about what Tether was thought that was a problem. 
I guess I was blessed with a comprehension of consumers that I thought that was a trivial concern. In fact, I knew it to my bones it was. And I had been operating marketplaces for decades. So when I mentioned the problem of in the early days of video game item trading, where a seller wanted to sell something and the buyer wanted it, but you had the Mexican standoff of the seller sends you the the item, then you just disappear. You pay the seller and he never sends you the item. So how did we solve that? We created a centralized custodial service where instead of sending those things to the individual buyer and seller, you don't eliminate the risk. You just transfer that risk to a different party. So there was no difference in a way. So instead of sending money to different buyers and buyers sending money to different sellers, they just now send it to us. But that just meant they had to transfer their faith from the seller to us. But what I knew about consumers was that consumers rapidly build trust after a few transactions. That's just how it works. And if you have any doubt about that, ask a person, have they ever bought something online? In the early days, there was a lot of worry. But after a few transactions, people say, more than likely, this is going to work. And of course, in the real world, how does that work out? Almost perfectly, because capitalism rewards trusted nodes. And if you don't act in good faith, you can scam a few, but you don't make a lot of money. So why does everybody trust Amazon? Amazon could take your credit card and never send you to merchandise because we all know Amazon is greedy, but they're not short-term greedy. They're long-term greedy, right? They want you to really have a lot of faith in them so that you'll use them a lot more. And the only way they can do that is to keep their commitment to do what they promised. So that's why I wasn't worried about that. I understood at that point that virtually no one, including most people in crypto, understood how a blockchain worked. So this notion where it's decentralized, what does that even mean? So if they don't even understand what that means, I didn't think it mattered that much that there was this money in a bank and they had to trust somebody to give it to them. Because remember, I was the first institutional investor in PayPal. That was in the early days of the internet and people raised the same concern. But how can we trust this PayPal company? You can't initially, you do take a risk. The risk is really in the first transaction. If you've ever used an app, I'll try it. Oh, they actually delivered my food. The next time you actually just assume they're going to deliver your food. So trust comes fast. And that is what happened with Tether. The only alternative, by the way, the way we do it, which is you put money in a bank account and then you issue tokens. And you're right. They have to take a leap of faith that the money is in the bank account. The same leap of faith you take with your bank now, I would add. We came up with two other ways to do it. So whenever you have a stable coin, there's three ways that I know to create it. The first is to have collateral denominated in fiat currency held in a bank. That is Tether. The second way is to have collateral that makes sure it sticks to its index. Collateral in a token but that token is a third-party token that has nothing to do with the issuer of the stablecoin. This might be the stablecoin make or die, where you have a stablecoin, a die, backed by a quantity of Ethereum. Now, make or die has nothing to do with Ethereum. That's a separate business. So they can't manipulate Ethereum. 
they either have a quantity of or they don't. The third way, and by the way, those first two ways, I think, work. The only critique I would make is the first way, super simple, super simple. And simplicity, especially in a new area, is really important for adoption. The second way, really hard for a lot of people to grasp, but it does work. The third way is where an issuer of a stablecoin backs the stablecoin with another token that the issuer created themselves. And that is the toxic thing because then they have an ability to print a lot more of that collateral and you could have runaway debasement if things go wrong. This is what happened with Luna. So we had thought about all those because they weren't new ideas. The University of Chicago has some great economists who for many, many decades have thought about how to make central banks more reliable and trustworthy and whatnot. And they thought of these mechanisms. The best way in my mind was the first. And I had always hoped we would eventually get to that second way. And that's because it would reduce the concern you brought up. Because you can't actually see on a blockchain what money is in a bank account. You can see, however, on a blockchain, how much Ethereum is locked up in a smart contract collateralizing a quantity of stablecoins. That's the reason DAI works well. The problem with it, however, is I mentioned it's complicated. Everybody has to learn how to create this collateralized mechanism and use it. And the other problem is there's a fixed quantity of Ethereum, let's say. So the money supply is going to be limited by the quantity of Ethereum. Ethereum is now deflationary. It's not growing, so we'll never have more of it. Now, you might say, but the value of Ethereum will keep going up, but still, it's limited. Uh, this is, of course, a rationale for why we had to get off the gold standard. There's only so much gold and so forth. This is the background on why Tether did what it did and why I still think it's the best way to do it, because... U.S. dollar is a commonly understood currency, and we can talk about whether Fed policies are good or bad, but the U.S. dollar has more confidence in it than any other currency on earth. You mentioned scar tissue for you with being blue, I think it was. So my scar tissue is that the point you made about trust, I feel differently about a consumer goods company where there's a credit card, there's some intermediary in there where if I send my money, I'll call my credit card company and there's some fallback insurance policy versus a financial services company. So I think of my scar tissue, we talked about this before, of when I got into crypto, watching the reserve fund break the buck in the financial crisis was a brand that had been trusted, not just by retail, but by institutions. And instantaneously, that the Buffett quote of losing your reputation happens instantly, that all of a sudden, once that faith was rattled, it's no longer I trust you. It's the exact opposite example where the trust is lost and there's a run and the thing explodes and implodes on itself. Now, one of the things I've been interested in, and it's just mostly from headlines, is there always seems to be with Tether, well, where's the money invested? Or there's a headline, there's negative, and it depegs and then it bounces back. It doesn't do the same thing that breaking the buck on a money market fund did where there was a run, it was regulated to announce it, but it just kept going. Because at that point, there was no good use to stay in there. And at that point, you're actually being paid interest. You're not even earning something on this. This is just the ability to hold it. So I was always fascinated by when these headlines, whether they were true or false hit, why they didn't cause the same panic that they did in traditional finance. 
Yeah. And I'll say a few things, by the way, because I think it's important for your audience. This is really important. Tether is not pegged to a dollar. We can never say that. There is no such thing as breaking a peg. Tether is redeemable for a dollar. That's it. The rate at which you are willing to exchange your tether for a, we'll call it a physical dollar, is up to you guys. There is no guy behind a curtain, a wizard, making sure that they always stay. To me, that's an impossible task. There's only one way that could ever be done, and that would be if there was one window and it was not tradable, and the only thing you could do would be to redeem it for a dollar. Then I guess if somebody wanted to value it, they would always value it at a dollar because that's what the redemption window gives you. Tether is a globally traded, maybe most of all, globally traded assets. It is traded between thousands of coins and traded with itself and other stable coins on thousands of exchanges globally, which means it would be impossible that all the buyers and all the sellers all have the exact same willingness to trade it at precisely a dollar. That would never happen. Sometimes you're on an exchange where there's not a lot of tokens traded. The tokens that are traded are risky and that exchange only has tether in that as a stable coin. In that case, you might be willing to pay a dollar five for every tether because yeah, you're overpaying for the tether, but damn the convenience of it. And by the way, that's how the real world works. When you use Venmo, you pay a dollar and three cents for a dollar because they charge you a fee. Why? Because it's convenient. You know this as a fixed income guy. If somebody says, What's the exchange rate of the dollar to the euro? You're going to say, I can only give you that number at a point in time and maybe even with a certain trading partner because it differs. It changes constantly. And it's the same thing with Tether. So it's redeemable. It's not pegged. And as far as why do people have faith in it if they don't really have daily audits or weekly audits? For the same reason that you use Venmo, you use PayPal, you use Cash App, you use those things. Do you really know that when you wired your money to their bank account at B of A or Wells Fargo, that their internal ledger that reports you have $1,000 of cash, how do you know that's true? You have faith. That's all it is. It's faith. And that faith is expressed in capitalistic terms as brand. Brand is trust. And the more trust you have in the brand, the more the brand is worth. Conversely, the more you've paid to build up your brand, the more trust you're going to have in it. And it is this fact that I think has made Tether sometimes misunderstood because people will say, look, it's depegged. Again, we shouldn't say that because there's no formal pegging. It's simply redeemable for a dollar. You will trade what you want, which is why you'll see when markets get really scary and Bitcoin is dropping and there's some rumor of a bad regulation somewhere, you'll see Tether trade at above a dollar. Now, if you're looking at coin market cap, which you have to realize that is a aggregate price across thousands of exchanges and different people trading. And it might've been exchanged for 95 cents in this place and a dollar 10 in this place and so forth. So you get this composite price. 
And probably never in the history of Tether has it traded for precisely a dollar. But damn, does it get close. I think it's so fascinating how you look at this from a technology consumer. You think about it so differently than mine does, which is why I enjoy it. And I think it was in 2019, you got a lot of press for saying something to the effect, and I'm not trying to misquote you, but it wouldn't even matter if Tether had the money. And I think you were trying to make this point that it was the trust. I guess the part that I'm struggling with, or just want to dig in on, and you were mentioning this earlier as a bank auditor, is I think about when I would trust something, there's convenience, there's trust, there might be credit risk or financial risk. And I agree that not everyone might have the same wiring. But when something that surprised me, and I was wrong on is I thought, okay, I can go look at USDC, I can go look at the treasury bills, this looks like a money market fund, I can analyze this, they're winning a transparency thing. So I might be losing something else. And maybe that's global convenience, maybe that's something else. And I think about if you put your bank auditor hat on, what is it about Tether the stablecoin that jumps over that? Because to your point, it's not just a finance question. It's not, oh, what are your daily reserves? What are your audits? That's not why people are using it. Because clearly, since that moment, it's gone completely the other way. Tether has grown massively and USDC has dropped, which would have been the opposite of economics that you said, look, I know the credit risk is zero and I'm unsure what the credit risk is over here. Therefore, the money should go towards the lower risk unless there's something else. Yes, exactly. And there you get into the mind of people like me, people who are crypto people, because we have competing risks that we're playing off against each other. USDC is really owned by Circle. Circle is a US-based company and is going to be highly responsive to what U.S. agencies tell it to do, right or wrong. And if they say cancel that account because that guy has said things about the COVID vaccine that's inconsistent with our official policy, they will seize that money. Why? Because they're told so. So you have this, we'll call it country risk. So globally, people are afraid of the United States. They're afraid of what it may do and that there's no way to stop it from doing those things. This is the reason why, and if people thought about it, I think they'd be curious like I am, why is it that U.S. banking laws are global laws? Why has the concept of jurisdiction, the bedrock of law, why does it not apply to banking? And banking, wherever you are in the world, must comply with U.S. banking laws? Well, the short answer is because the U.S. has enough power to make you and your country eliminated from all global banking systems. And banking only works if it's networked. A bank that just has your cash and isn't networked is basically just a vault. And it has very limited value in a digital age. By the way, talk to the Russians about this. So I think one of the things that makes Tether so much more appealing to people, particularly outside the US, than USDC is they believe that the people running Tether have values that are more in line with the traditional crypto values than they are with the regulatory mindset that a lot of people in the US have to deal with and contend with. And Tether's shown this a few times where Tether has said, USDC might say, we're not going to interact with this particular decentralized exchange because US Treasury has told us not to, whether or not they have an authority to do that. 
And USDC says, okay, not going to do that. Whereas Tether says, for us to do that, we would have to violate one of the principles of being decentralized. And so we're not going to do that. And for how long Tether can actually do that, I don't know. But this is why, by the way, ideally, at some point, Tether does need to no longer be solely linked to a fiat of anything. It needs to migrate to something that still is stable, and it could be a basket of currencies or whatever, but it can't be in a position where it has bank accounts that can be easily seized. Because if that happens, then people will lose faith in it. And this is why make or die collateralized against Ethereum or Bitcoin is exciting. And yet, as I mentioned before, it's very, very limited in how big it can be. How do you square those two points that the U.S. banking system, because of SWIFT, the example with the Russians or whether it's Afghanistan, understanding your money is actually at the New York Fed, that the banking system that the U.S. controls is global. So how does Tether manage that? Because I assume they need banking relationships. And maybe that's why you always hear that they're much smaller or international banks they have to deal with. But is that the game of cat and mouse of how are they able to maintain banking relationships what they need? It's brutal. So banking, and I talked a lot to people about this, including staffers who work for members of Congress, a lot of business people. I'm always shocked how ignorant the American public is to how since a few pieces of legislation, the worst one being the Patriot Act, the second one being Dodd-Frank, they have weaponized banking to such an extent that lots of people myself included, never feel comfortable with whether or not their banks will be just shut down at any given moment. Patriot Act was the first step, and it was awful. Under the auspices of we can't let terrorists spend money on bombs, of course, but that's gone to, well, we are going to look at every single transaction, unless it's a plain vanilla transaction, you're paying for your mortgage, you're getting a deposit from your employer, we're going to question it. And we don't necessarily even think you're a bad guy, but we just don't want to fill out these suspicious activity reports and file them with the treasury. So we're just going to ban you. And so this is a huge problem for many, many people, particularly people in the US. If you're a cash-based business, you're really screwed. Banking has become a very difficult thing for many, many people. And I think, unfortunately, still a lot of people don't realize how big of a problem that is. And so this will always be a problem for Tether. And you see, the way the U.S. does it, it's probably worth explaining. Let's say the U.S. is 20, let's call it 25% of global GDP. That's a lot. And it's a relatively open market, which is, for those of you who don't do a lot of work outside the U.S., it's incredible how almost anyone in the world can sell things in the United States and be treated the same as a U.S. citizen. It's a remarkable thing, which is why the world loves to sell things into the U.S. It's also the fourth largest population in the world, third or fourth, and for the most part, already speaks the same language. So it's a wonderful market. So what the U.S. has done is it said, if you want to do anything in the U.S., sell anything, then you need a bank account. And in order to have a bank account, your bank, let's say in Portugal, has to abide by our laws. Okay, fair enough. So if you're a Portuguese bank and you want to have access to the U.S. market, you have to abide by U.S. laws. I get that. But what if you were China and you just said, 
look, we're not going to be browbeaten. We're not going to abide by U.S. laws, and we don't want to have direct banking relationships with the U.S. You're still screwed, and here's why. Because then the U.S. says, okay, any bank who does business in the U.S., who does business with a bank not in the U.S., but who doesn't abide by U.S. laws, we're going to cut your access too. So that Portuguese bank can't work with a Chinese bank if the Chinese bank isn't complying with U.S. laws, because then the Portuguese bank's cut off. You see how this contagion spreads? So very quickly, what you realize is no bank that wants to exist in the world can do anything but abide by U.S. laws. And of course, we need to go from U.S. laws to very subtle things beyond the scope of this conversation, but things like Choke Point and Choke Point 2, which were operations conducted by U.S. agencies to request or to coerce banks to do things, even if there was not a requirement for them to do those things, under the threat that we may come after you and we're going to find stuff you've done. So if you're in an industry, let's say nightclubs or alcohol or uh, guns, any industry that someone in the U.S. government doesn't like, they can use banking access as a way to make it impossible for you to operate. And the more they do that, of course, the more people want to look at crypto as a way to conduct particularly cross-border transactions without the threat of having their bank account seized for doing nothing illegal, just being in an unpopular category that someone in the U.S. government doesn't like. That's a big part of why people embrace crypto. Knowing that backdrop, does it surprise you that Tether got to this big? I both can see it's a reaction to that, that people would want that freedom to do and transact as they wish. But also with that global power where you're talking about sovereign nations not wanting something, does it surprise you as a founder now looking at the sheer size of it that was able to get this large? It does a bit. Yeah. There's small banks everywhere that are like, whatever, we'll work with you. There's no prohibition against it. But then as you get bigger, there's a policy factor here. When we look at things like Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate Bank and Signature Bank, First Republic, I heard a lot of smart people in the United States say these dummies, these business guys, crypto guys, whoever, tech people, wow, they're so dumb. They should have all of their money in money center banks. And well, one explanation could be we're all stupid. The other could be maybe those money center banks won't work with us. And I think the policies of US banking really influenced the instability because they had us work with and put lots of deposits in, consider Silicon Valley Bank, a several hundred billion dollars of deposits in a bank that probably had, and I used to be a bank auditor, had the internal controls sufficient for a bank with 10 billion to 25 billion in assets under management. They were not prepared for more than that. But tech client, a venture-backed tech client is a very undesirable client for a bank. And briefly, the reason for that is banks want you to put in deposits and keep them there plus or minus forever. We call those core deposits. And core deposits can be leveraged using fractional reserve banking to a much higher multiple than non-core deposits. Well, if you take money from a money-losing venture-backed tech company that has 18 months of runway, 
That means it's got 18 months to every month be draining its bank account. So you know eventually all those deposits are going away. You can't put them in anything long term. Now, Silicon Valley did do that. They decided, well, maybe these guys will get funded and they'll get more cash. And of course, that was the reason that they imploded. So when you're that kind of undesirable bank or client, you have a very limited number of banks who will work with you. And Tether is in that boat. So here they have whatever, 70 billion plus of value. And now it's not all in bank accounts at this point. It's in marketable securities, which of course have more risk than fiat in the sense that they can move in relation to fiat, as you know. One of the things that I think the Silicon Valley Bank fiasco helped educate people, something a fixed income guy would get intuitively, is just because you have a U.S. government issued or a U.S. government guaranteed fixed income security does not mean that thing has no risk. It has no risk of default, but it does have a risk of moving down. And that's something that I think a lot of people didn't understand. They looked at it and they said, oh, wow, all the money is in fixed income guaranteed or issued by the U.S. government. And they weren't taking into account, yeah, but it moves inversely with interest rates. Interest rates are going up, the portfolio is going down. We've all got educations recently in macro. Oh man, I could just keep talking to you about banking, but I would be remiss if I didn't touch on wax and NFTs, obviously, in the headlines. It was a huge 21 global phenomenon. People were interested. It got a lot of people onboarded. What has your perspective been from building wax? And the other part specifically that interests me about wax is you have major brands like Marvel, Funko, Hot Wheels. You had brands come in as opposed to buying random artists, animal picture, PFP, or some generative art project? I don't think we've ever done Marvel, but we have done Hasbro and big game companies, NASCAR, Topps Trading Cards, AMC Movie Theater, a whole bunch of big brands, probably more big brands than any other chain. So briefly, as you know, we did, my partner invented the very concept of trading video game virtual items for money. We did that for a number of years until he sold it. And then we were doing crypto. But we were always wondering, is there ever going to be an application or a way for us to trade video game virtual items on a blockchain? Because one of the issues was the video game companies didn't really like it. And they were always seizing the accounts and giving us grief and it was expensive. So we wondered how would we ultimately get video game virtual items on a blockchain? We were thinking about that when we did Tether back in 2013. But at the time, the reason we didn't push forward with tokenizing skins or video game virtual items was because there was no blockchain consensus mechanism that was fast enough. And to put that in more plain English, there was no blockchain that could validate transactions quickly, seven times roughly a second for Ethereum, seven to 14 times a second. Bitcoin takes 10 minutes to actually confirm a transaction. Roughly sub a dozen transactions a second, very, very slow compared to a traditional SQL database. In 2017, a guy who I have a great respect for, Dan Larimer, who has designed more blockchains and consensus mechanisms that have been over a billion dollars of value than anyone else, four of them he's made. Well, he came up with a new type of consensus mechanism called DPoS, Delegated Proof of Stake. And we looked at it and said, this is the engine 
token validating engine that actually should be able to get to some pretty high transaction volumes. That was true. DPoS today remains the absolute best, most reliable, fastest, lowest cost way to validate a transaction. And so we use that to then launch WAX. And by the time we were launching WAX, video game virtual items had then shifted to something called a skin. Skins are very similar to NFTs. And so people use the term video game virtual item and skin interchangeably. Just let me tell you the difference. A video game virtual item is a in-game item that provides some in-game utility for the players, magic sword, power button, or whatever. As a result that these things provide utility, there would never be very many of them. Things that provide utility, you need very few of. Things that have no utility have an unlimited market demand. So skins are video game virtual items that have no in-game utility. They're strictly for cosmetic value. And when we learned about skins, we were like, wow, these things will be the growth engine. And so in 2017, I think you can still see it on YouTube, I announced what we're going to do with Wax and said, we're going to purpose build a blockchain that is going to, I don't think we used the term NFTs because that term wasn't really popular, but I think we just said media files. We're going to allow you to put media files on a blockchain and trade them. For instance, skins. I learned a few things when I was in London giving that presentation. One, the crypto industry had changed from its origins where there was mostly video game people. And then lots of people asked a valid question, but William, why would you need to build your own blockchain to do this? Why don't you just use Ethereum? And having been the second largest buyer in the Ethereum crowd sale and having been involved in the predecessor to Ethereum and had been a major user of Ethereum, keep in mind, most people who trade these things have never actually used them. I knew that Ethereum was totally ill-suited for any consumer mass market phenomenon, too expensive and too slow. And even up until the mid-2021, I would say virtually no one using Ethereum understood the consensus mechanism mechanic. Ethereum, and they all realize this eventually, all blockchains get congested the way Bitcoin resolves the congestion is you just wait in line and eventually your turn comes. The way Ethereum designed their system, they copied the Uber surge pricing model where you can pay to get to the front. And that is great. But if you think about a business that wants to reliably know what the cost is going to be for it to serve its customers, the fact that it's like the commodities exchange where it can pop 300% above the daily standard pricing made it ill-suited for what we were going to do. So I think people got that a little. The hardcore gamers, once we launched, were like, this is super cool. Then we did what I had wanted to do for a long time. We took the Topps trading card company, some of their old brands like Garbage Pail Kids, and then the Topps baseball cards and started allowing people to trade those. I think that really opened up people's minds to what NFTs could be. Up until we did tops as a pack, we called it a wax pack. You would open a pack, you'd get five random cards, some good ones, maybe some great ones, just like the regular traditional tops trading card packs you would open up as a kid. Up until we did that, everybody's mindset was that NFTs were things you used in a game. 
and they only existed really for the game. And us coming from the skin and video game virtual item trading back, and we're like, no, they can have value in and of themselves just as tradable collectibles. And that was almost like four years though, 2017, 18, 19, 20. And then we got tops to do our thing. And then mid 2020, it just started to take off. And then it really popped, as you said, in 2021, where a lot of people realized this is super cool. Now they picked the wrong blockchain because they only knew about Ethereum. They jumped on that. But to give you a perspective of the difference for people who really understood the value either in launching an NFT or in trading them, Ethereum might do a million, million two daily transactions. Wax does 20 to 25 million daily transactions. So Wax has more transactions than usually all the top 10 blockchains combined. The reason was purpose-built for trading media files, NFTs initially, and then eventually other things. And we also did something that no blockchain had done before. We built the component pieces of the blockchain to work in tandem with each other. Think of it like the closed system that Apple creates, where they have all these nicely integrated things. So we built a wallet that was very familiar to people who trade skins, very easy to use. Instead of your public and private key, which can be messy and complicated, you could put your login credentials from Uber or from Google or PayPal or Facebook. So being able to use your traditional login credentials and being able to trade easily by the wallet doing a lot of the stuff that you have to do, which is only even possible because of delegated proof of stake, made it much easier to adopt and use. It was also very low cost, which was a big deal because of how expensive it was on Ethereum. And so a purpose-built chain going all the way back to how we were talking earlier, understanding what a blockchain does well, and then building for it to exploit those things it does well, that's what we did with Wax. We had to do something that it does really well because, of course, when you think about trading items between other people with no intermediary, the biggest issue is going to be the trust factor. If I pay you, but you send me something that's fake, how do I resolve that? On a blockchain, you get trust because that's how the blockchains are designed. So I think NFTs or collectibles are a really wonderful use case for blockchains. And even though we've seen NFT volume drop a lot since 2021, that was because it got, and we've seen this in traditional markets, whether it's housing or stocks, the markets get ahead of themselves. People get into this euphoria. And then a lot of people start marketing a lot of junk. And then everybody wakes up and says, what am I doing? These mortgage-backed securities are all subprime. And then they abandon them. You had a lot of that going on with NFTs. And I think now you've got mostly people who are just interested in the tradability or the video game aspect of it, which is why it's lower volume, but it's more consistent. That's awesome. William, I could talk to you for a long time. We end this podcast with the same question, which is, what are you most excited to build over the next six months? And what are you most excited to build over the next six years? Well, in the next six months, we're always building things in blockchain, my partner and me. We're interested cautiously in what Apple is doing with its headset. I have a view, generally speaking, that augmented reality is going to be an enormous consumer area. It'll be putting a digital overlay around the world. It will ultimately, in your everyday life, there's always a digital overlay with different filters. 
is going to be, I think, the way people interact, the way people just explore the world in the future. But that's 10-year-plus future. What Apple's doing, and I believe Apple will be committed to this because ultimately they've got to end of life the phone and they've got to do something else. But we're very interested in understanding Apple's new headsets. I don't think that they're going to be very successful. I think they've even priced them at this very, very high price, almost as an excuse to say, oh, it's more of a luxury. And then over the years, they're going to figure it out. But if you want to do anything in an area like this, you have to be in pretty early and you have to start to really understand it. So in the next six months, I hope to understand how their technology works and do something in this area. And longer term, then ultimately, I expect blockchains and NFTs to be the revenue model of augmented reality. And if that happens, one of the beautiful things is we will not be trapped by these 10 or so companies globally that dictate virtually everything we see, we search for, we purchase, we stream on the internet. Going back to when I started Idealab Capital Partners as a consumer internet fund, back then everybody thought the internet was going to eliminate middlemen. And if you say that to people now, they're like, oh my God, it actually created the most powerful middlemen on earth. These giant funnel companies that aggregate all the traffic, Apple and Google and Facebook and Amazon and Baidu, and they control everything. So what I am working towards is augmented reality that uses blockchain and blockchain-based tokens like NFTs to exchange value, both the short and the long term. That's awesome. William, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 